So we're starting at John 8, verse 48, and we're kind of at the tail end of a couple of really intense chapters where Jesus is discussing and really they're the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders like the Pharisees are more arguing very intensely with him. Um, And throughout here, sometimes it says Pharisees, sometimes it just says the Jews, like it does at the beginning of our text. And that really is referring to the religious leaders of the day. John is using Jews to refer to them, the ones who are having these discussions, these arguments, these disagreements with Jesus. And this is sort of the culmination of the last couple chapters of these very intense discussions. Let's listen to God's holy and infallible word. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Not kind things to say to Jesus. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And yeah, even we can tell to call him demon-possessed, Jesus. Jesus ignores the Samaritan thing completely, but he says as we go on in 49, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And at this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glory myself, glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. And they respond, you are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said, and you have seen Abraham. And these are the focus of our of our sermon. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. That's God's word for us this morning. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus' most offensive I am. We're concluding this I am who I am series today. We've been focusing um, on places in the Gospel of John where Jesus uses the word I am to identify with his Father, with God. Uh, And the people in Jesus' day would have known whenever he used that language that he was bringing up something that happened in the Old Testament. In Exodus 3, at verse 14, where Moses sees the burning bush, and God speaks to Moses out of that bush and calls Moses to save his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Moses is a little bit nervous about that, but he also needed just a little more information when he went back to Egypt and talked to the Israelites. So he says there, what shall I say 
if your people ask me what your name is. Because he hasn't spoken to Israel um, for a long time at this point. So what do I, what do I say, who, who you are? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And that name conveys eternal mystery. It's like that it's a, it's a verb, actually, I am, right? It's a verb. But this particular verb in Hebrew conveys past, present, future, somehow, all at once. And, and so it, it, re, it signifies very much like the eternity of God in that name. Anytime you see in your Old Testament, Lord, the word Lord, have you noticed that sometimes it's in all caps or actually technically small caps? That's that name, what the I am that God talks about there in Genesis 3. Um, We used to translate that with the word Jehovah, and you still see that we sing Jehovah like in our Blue Psalter Psalms, but more recently in the last number of decades, scholars have thought Yahweh is probably the closer to that name. So Lord, all caps, or Yahweh. The point is, though, that when Jesus spoke those words, the people of Israel in his day knew what he was saying. And here, it insults the religious leaders, and they pick up stones to kill him. So they were clearly offended, right? If they're doing that. And it's kind of striking, even to you and me, gathered here at home or here in the sanctuary, because all the I am statements that we've seen so far come across mostly as very comforting as encouraging to us. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine we had just last week. There's a general warning, I think always included too, like if you're not part of my flock, if you're not following me, the good shepherd, guess what? The enemy will devour you. Or if you are a branch, but you're on your own and not connected to me, the vine You're going to be thrown into the fire. But the main thrust is comfort and assurance so far in all the I am statements we've seen. When you partake of me, says Jesus, the bread of life, guess what? You're going to have everything you need. And when you go through me, the door or the gate, you will have life and life eternal. And then we have this one, which is very different, very different response, sort of different context. And what comes to mind is we know that God's word and the word come become flesh, Jesus himself, always cut both ways. It should at least. He, Jesus, should at least. And, and he will cut both ways when people are truly hearing him. In, in your own reading of God's word or in the preaching of the word, any true believer is going to remember times when they've been cut to the heart, convicted of sin, brought to their knees in grief for how we have let our Savior down. And if that's never happened to you, you might have to ask yourselves, in my life, have I really, truly 
been listening to God's word? Have I really, truly ever heard it? I remember a specific time, like I'm sure many of you do too, but I was like 19 or 20, I was listening to a sermon, and in that message somehow, God's word came at me so strongly, convicting me of sin, that I was just crushed. My spirit was crushed. I was overwhelmed. I was broken. I was humbled. I let the pastor who preached, you know, greet folks for a while afterwards. But then when he was done with that, I I went out and reached out with him and talked about it. and, And we spoke and we prayed for a while. And I just needed to share what was so heavy on my heart with him. And he prayed for me, and he brought me again to the forgiving grace of Jesus. And I was so greatly comforted, and there was like a weight that came off my shoulders. And really, if you think about it, God's word, Jesus, needs to have that kind of effect on all of us first, realizing that we are lost, that we're broken on our own, that we need him and his love so much. We have to get that first in order to receive all the comfort and assurance that he provides and speaks to us. And that's not something that just needs to happen once in our lives. I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven, and that's it. But we need that word coming at us both ways all the time. Our hearts as Christians and our lives always need to be open to receive correction, to receive conviction from the Lord and from his word. If if you're truly hearing Jesus in the Bible and in preaching, he will at times, in a sense, offend you. He'll offend your actions, your heart, your sensibilities, so that we can then be called again to uh, the road of obedience and that path of walking in his grace. The final I am phrase, which is the heartbeat and sort of foundation center of them all, is downright offensive to many. And it's offensive in at least a couple of ways. Jesus is offensive first because he declares he is divine. By using the language of I am like God did with his people in the Old Testament, he's saying he's the same as the God of the Old Testament. And every good Jewish believer in Jesus' day would know about that God, their God, the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he was the creator God of the universe, just as John 1 says about Jesus. Um, that he is eternal, that he is able to forgive sins and do miracles like Jesus did, much to the people's amazement. Jesus brings up Abraham and the religious leaders who are arguing with him in our verses did earlier, and that's why Jesus brings up Abraham. And they brought him up because that's like the biggest, most important name in their history. You notice how they said Abraham and the prophet. So there were many others, but they name Abraham. 
Um, so that's the biggest guy they could think of in terms of their history, their faith history. Jesus is saying, I am before Abraham was even born, before him, in other words. In other words, I'm greater than him. Jesus, this man who they saw walking around and speaking, is saying, I am God. I and the Father are one. And the people couldn't handle that. They're offended to the point of wanting to kill him. And the reason for that is because in Leviticus, blasphemy is punishable by killing, by stoning especially. Blasphemy is to speak offensively about God. And instead of believing what he said, they choose to say, you're speak- I don't believe that you are, but you're clearly speaking offensively about God. And so they did what they thought they needed to do to punish him, kill him with stones. But that's not the only thing that's offensive to them and the people in that day. They're also offended because Jesus is declaring that he is the mediator, the savior, the redeemer who is promised in the Old Testament to save humankind from their sins. And that means he's also human, which explains why he, divine, truly God, could walk around ancient Israel and be born of a woman how he got hungry, how he wept. That he's the promised one we see when Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of me and seeing my day. He saw that and was glad. In other words, by faith, Abraham saw this day coming uh, and the one who would fulfill all the promises of God that God spoke to Father Abraham of being with him and his descendants forever, the one who would take care of the sins of his people, the one through whom all nations would be blessed. Often in Abraham's day, it was about 2,000 years B.C., uh, when you made an agreement, it was a very bloody ordeal, just like worship with the sacrificed animals on the altar was a bloody ordeal in the Old Testament. God made these promises, made this agreement with Abraham where he committed to being Abraham's God and to his children after him. And Abraham committed to the Lord in Genesis 15. And so they did what you did when you made a solemn oath in those days. God had Abraham bring a heifer, a goat, and a ram, all three years old, as well as a dove and a young pigeon. And, and Abraham knew right what to do with them. He knew uh, for agreements in those days with other people, but also with God. It wasn't like transactions in our day. There was no paperwork. It wasn't even a handshake. What Abraham did was he cut those animals in half, and then he arranged the animals in, in such a way that there was a path to walk on. So if you imagine the center aisle, bloody animal parts on both sides, probably one next to Brandon, one by Will and the Lurups and Sharon. And then you'd walk through those bloody halves. And then both parties who made, made the agreement would walk through that saying, in effect, symbolizing, if I don't keep my promise that I just made to you, you know, as you're looking at these dead animals, may that happen to me. What happened to these animals? In other words, may, may I die? But something different happened 
here. After Abraham arranged everything, at night a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between those pieces. So God took on uh, this physical appearance for that special time in order to say to Abraham and in order to say to all of us, I am going to keep both sides of our agreement. I'm going to keep mine, and I'm also going to keep yours. You don't have to walk through, because though you said, Abraham, and all of us, though you want to, and you will follow me, and obey me, and worship me, I know that you're never going to be able to keep that promise. You're never going to be able to follow through on that as a sinful human being. In fact, there's not a single human being who could except one who is sinless. There was one more level to Abraham's rejoicing about Jesus' day being here uh, that adds to the picture. Isaac was born to Abraham, his son, and his wife Sarah, and that was the very beginning of the promises of God to Abraham actually concretely being fulfilled in his life. So when Isaac, the child of the promise of God, became a little bit older, God told Abraham to sacrifice him on an altar of all things. Abraham was obedient, but God stopped him at the last second as his knife was raised. And and so Abraham was able to walk away from that moment, in a sense, with the son who had been all but dead, but who, in fact, was alive and was able to rise from that altar. And that was a picture that God gave him about the ultimate fulfillment of his promises one day. Jesus, the sinless one, who would willingly offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins and who God would then raise to life. And sometimes we think, well, you know, are we, is this a stretch that could Abraham have known all of that? Well, the people in, in the Old Testament who received the promises of God that the Messiah would one day come and take care of sin and death once and for all, I'm sure they didn't know all the details of how that would work out. But also, I think there's good reason to think that maybe they knew a lot more than we suspect they knew just from reading the Bible. Because Psalm 25 is a really interesting verse in there. Psalm 25, 14 talks about the Lord sharing secret things with those who fear him and who were part of the covenant family. So, so who knows how much Abraham knew? Maybe much more than we thought. We certainly know God's only son would fulfill the father's promise by becoming man, by being born of a virgin womb, humbling himself, but yet always remaining fully divine that I am, fully God. And he would assume human flesh and so be true God and true man as we professed, we were supposed to profess earlier, I skipped over the Nicene Creed. We'll maybe do it afterwards if we can, okay? Um, Let's do it afterwards, because the Nicene Creed, as opposed to the Apostles' Creed that we normally profess, goes into quite a bit of detail on the person of Jesus, like our text does. So don't let me, let's do it after. (laughs) Um, 
So true God, true man, and that's because that was what was required to pay for our sins. Someone who's divine could completely, fully withstand the punishment of God against sin, but also someone fully man, since it's humankind's sin that needs to be paid. Our Heidelberg Catechism explains this from in Lord's Days 5 and 6, Lord's Day Lessons 5 and 6, and can we or any other creature pay this debt of sin that we owe God? Certainly not, is the answer. Only Jesus, fully divine and fully human, could pay the debt of sin. And he did on the cross. He bridges the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. He ushers us and adopts us into the Father's family. He's our mediator. We enter into a covenant, a special, intimate relationship with God the Father through the Son, Jesus. We belong to the Father through Jesus. And so the offense of Jesus for those who don't believe is both that he's fully God and he has been from the beginning, even eternally, but also the offense is that he's fully human. And, and, and as such, he's the only way for salvation. He's the only way to the Father, the only one who could make atonement, which is what we needed to happen. The only one who could make us at one with God, atonement at one with God. I am the door, he says, and there's only one door. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there's only one way. There's only one truth. There is only one life that can heal you and save you. I am the light of the world, and there's only one light that can get us out of our darkness. And that creates a divide, and it's inevitable. We see it here. They reject Jesus. They want to kill him, but he slips away. Is Jesus afraid of these guys? I thought he was fully divine. No, he's not afraid. It's just that it's not yet his time to go to the cross. Jesus is no victim. He's going to go willingly, humbly, but on his terms. And that time wasn't yet. What happens when they reject him like this? Uh, the King James says it better than our translation here. When it says, after they picked up stones, Jesus hid himself. He went out of the temple, went through the midst of them, and so passed by. Passed by. As Jesus passed by them, he passes by all who will not believe in him. Those who reject him, like these people here, are going to be passed by in terms of salvation and everlasting life and all the blessings of life in him. Just a few verses earlier, before the ones we read, Jesus calls the enemies of the Lord children of the devil. And the Bible in Genesis 3 talks about them as the seed of the serpent, of Satan. These reject Jesus, seek to tear down his church, disrupt his kingdom. And by contrast, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, which by faith Christians are part of that seed, we, by contrast, accept and we embrace Jesus. 
The battle lines are clearly drawn for us in the Bible from the beginning, and they have gone on throughout history. They seem to be clearer than ever today. Any of you see that video of the Bible burning or Bibles burning in the riots in Portland? Anybody notice that? I I looked into it a little bit more, and I understand there's some dispute about the video and the news story that goes with it. And some are like, well, there wasn't a very large group doing that. And the, the burning, they were just using it as kindling. And it was just a few people. And most of the rioters weren't doing that. But even if it was a few people, even if it was one Bible for kindling, it's like, a Bible? What? I mean, what in the world is going on? Bibles burning happens in communist countries. That happens in Muslim countries. And now it's happening here? And the reality is that the good that we have had in this country came from God's word. Any good that we've had came from the message of the grace of God in Jesus Christ and how that grace came to us through Jesus dying on a cross to make an atoning sacrifice for poor sinners like all of us. Jesus was more than a really nice guy who helped poor people. And people are fine with thinking of him as that. But once you say anything more, they are offended and they can't stand him. They reject the real Jesus, the great I am. However many people were burning Bibles and however many Bibles were burned there in Portland, it seems that there is a strong movement that's pushing harder than ever to destroy what's been so important to the foundations of our nation, to the foundations of of Western civilization, period, and that's Christianity, And I think our culture is very fine with delaying the opening of churches like we're doing and starting here, delaying that opening as long as possible. Those who are offended by the person of Jesus, true God and true man, those people who are offended by all that we discover about him in this most offensive I am statement would love for the church population to drop another 20%. After all, this pandemic is said and done. There are strong forces, forces, I firmly believe, that want to upend Christianity once and for all. They threw stones at him. They're throwing stones at us. I believe much of what's going on has a sinister root. That, as always in history, there's opposition to God's word, his written word, and his word become flesh, our Lord Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As the seed of the serpent continues to rebel and tries to kill him and his people, let's be sure today that we are part of the seed of the woman, that we're children of Abraham, and anyone is invited to be a child of Abraham. It happens by faith as we embrace Jesus and his precious person and his work. Instead of casting stones at him, we humbly bend the knee to Emmanuel, 
God with us, and we pay him homage with our lives in every part, every square inch. We're able to do that because of the power of the cross, which Paul says in Galatians, offends so many. But for you and me, the cross is not an offense. It's our only comfort in life and in death. For us, for you and me, we can walk forward in faith. We can step by step move forward all the way as we say, with this I am, I know who I am. Amen? Let's pray. O Lord, uh, the great I am, rule and reign over our lives. Help us to humbly bend the knee to you and to be walking close with you by your word and spirit. Bless your word as it comes uh, to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.